Morning, everyone. Those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, one of the associate pastors. And last week I started a new series on heaven, and we'll do part uh, two this weekend now. And if you weren't here last weekend, like I said, uh, uh, last weekend was uh, intro week, and I said some foundational stuff for the series. And so if you weren't here, it would help you for the series to go back probably and listen to that. And I'm not trying to make extra money off you. You can listen to all of our messages online for free or watch them for free uh, on our website. So that's just a good reminder for you if you're uh, here today and you're new. Just a brief recap of what we covered last week. Uh, we looked at two main points last week. And the first one was, uh, I forget, uh, it's fourth time through this. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't believe how crazy it is to do this four times. But anyway, the first point we looked at was uh, the Bible commands us to actually lay up hope uh, in heaven. Uh, it's not actually, some of you might be coming here and, oh, this is kind of a neat new series uh, Chris is doing, and I, I love when he does interesting, fascinating stuff. And I want you to know this is not just a fascinating uh, series to, you know, kind of uh, feed your curiosities. Uh, this is actually stemming out of command. Over and over in Scripture, as we looked at last week, we are commanded as believers to lay up hope in heaven. We're commanded to look forward to heaven. And, uh, and there's something about, now again, we're not just looking forward to a place. We're looking forward to be with Jesus in that place, and he's so amazing. But there's something that happens in a believer's life, that when you begin to look, look forward to be with Jesus in heaven, that faith and love begin to spring out of your life here in this, in this short little lifetime here. All right, so it changes your life. And so we looked at that in the first part. And the second uh, thing we looked at in the second half of the message was, uh, why is it that so many Christians today are not looking forward to heaven? I mean, if it's such a wonderful place and it has benefits in our life and we look forward to it, why are so many of us not looking forward to it? And surely, I, I, I know there must be many reasons probably for that, but one of the main reasons we looked at was the fact that we think of heaven in such boring, spiritual, unphysical terms. And the reason we think about heaven in such boring, spiritual, and unphysical terms is not because it's anything like that is written in the Bible. It's because of ancient Greek assumptions that have wormed their way into our culture and that we now read the Bible with those assumptions. And so I talked about what some of those assumptions were and, and, uh, and we're in this series attempting to peel back those assumptions and get a, a true picture of what heaven really is and what it's like. And, uh, and so what I want to do now in the next two weeks, this weekend now, uh, this morning, and then next weekend, I want to answer the question, what is heaven? And we're going to look at three or four specific points. And then what I want to do is after that, and then the last message, the last message or two of the series, after this weekend, next week, and then after that, I want to tie all of this together, and I want to show you something about heaven that most of you have never even thought about before. And after that, heaven's just going to pop off the pages of the Bible to you. But before we get there, I have to lay a bunch of foundation. And so, in fact, today, what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit of review. If you were here for the last series we did on heaven a few years ago, uh, some of this won't be new to you. But I have to, I have to set a firm foundation because where we're going at the end of this series, if I would just come out and say it right now, you would think I was totally whacked, okay? So I have to build your faith a bit. We have to have a solid foundation that I'm not just leaping off into blind faith unknown. When we get to the end of this series, I want to show you it's firmly rooted in here. Okay, and so the next couple weeks we're going to look at what is heaven, and this week we're only going to get through one thing, what is heaven, and that is that heaven is a created place, all right? And so, but before we even touch on that, let's pray, and uh, I want to first of all pray for Pastor Ray and Fran, they're on a study break now, and, uh, and I want to pray that the Holy Spirit's going to really speak to us here this morning, all right? Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we first want to lift up Pastor Ray and Fran as they're uh, off to BC for a two-week uh, study break, and Lord Jesus, um, we just love them as our leaders here in this family. And uh, we pray, God, when they are blessed, when our leaders are blessed, we are blessed as a church. Father, I pray that they will be renewed on this break, that they will be renewed, that they will have uh, a refreshed spiritual vision, that you will give them specifics of where you want to take this church this year. And Father, because we're just looking forward to where you're going to take us through their leadership. And, uh, and Father, for us here now this morning, one more shot here, and I'm so glad to get to be a part of this family here at Southland, Lord. I'm so glad to get to speak to, to this family here. And, and Lord, I just pray, my desire, Jesus, is that we are going to begin to long for you and to long to live with you and that it will radically change the way we live our lives in this lifetime. Help me to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So one thing this week, and like I said, a little bit of a review, but it's important. We've got to, I, got to, I want to be so careful um, because what we're going to talk about in this series is so radically different 
and because many of you weren't even here for that first series, but because it's so radically different than how we think. Not that it's not in the Bible. It's so in the Bible, everything I'm going to show you. But it's so radically different that I want to take it slowly, and I want to make sure we're constantly standing very firmly on Scripture everywhere we are, and you can feel comfortable with where we're going, all right? And so what I want to start with today is, what is heaven? Heaven is a created place. Heaven is a created place. Uh, normally when we think of heaven, we again, we think of it in very vague spiritual Greek terms. We think of heaven as a place that has just always existed, okay? It's, there's always been heaven. God has just forever and ever and ever always lived in heaven, okay? And then one day, he looked down on the physical universe and he decided, well, now I'm gonna, or looked down on nothing and decided, I'm going to make the physical universe. But we think of the physical universe and heaven as totally separate worlds. They're alien worlds from each other. One is made of atoms and molecules, and one is not made out of atoms and molecules. One was created at a point in time, and the other one has just sort of always existed. That's how we tend to think of heaven. Totally separate worlds, okay? Not in Scripture, okay? Scripture is very clear that just as the physical universe was created, so was physical heaven. In fact, as you're going to see by the end of this message, they were created at the same time in the beginning, all right? So let me just read you some passages. Colossians 1 verse 16 says this. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So in this passage, Paul clearly says that everything in heaven and heaven itself was created. Heaven has not just always been. There was a point in time, and before that point in time, there was no heaven. There was just God, and there was no heaven, and there was no earth. It started at a point in time. It is a created place. It is not a spiritual forever and ever place. I mean, it's forever and ever into the future, but it's not without a start, just like the earth. Okay, very important. Many other passages we could look at. I'll look at Hebrews 11, and this is a passage we will come back and look at much more in depth next week. But uh, Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city. And I want to just stop there for just a moment. In Hebrews, and, 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 and later in the same passage, it applies this to all of the Old Testament saints. But what this passage is saying right here is radical. It's saying that everything Abraham did, we all know Abraham lived a life of faith. He's the hero of faith in the Bible. He is kind of the guy that when you talk about faith in the Bible, Abraham's the guy. He left the, his family to go to a land that he never seen before. He believed God for a baby when he was 100 years old. Okay, He believed God and was willing to even sacrifice his miracle child Isaac Because he believed in God. And in this passage, it gives us one of the secrets to Abraham's faith. Why did he do all these crazy things of faith? Because the reason he was willing to sacrifice everything and go all out is because he was looking ahead to the heavenly city. How many of us Christians today are completely missing that motivation? First rabbit trail of the day. Let's keep going. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So first passage we saw that heaven is a created place. Second passage we see heaven is a built place. It's a, it has a beginning. It hasn't always existed. God had to have the idea, and one day he had the idea, mm, I'm going to make heaven. And then he designed it, it says here. Then he laid its foundations, and then he built it. Okay? Now, here's the thing about when you build something. You don't build something out of air, okay? You don't build something out of spirit, okay? When you build something, you take physical materials. You take pieces of wood and concrete and pieces of metal or whatever it is. I know nothing about building things, okay? But I do know this, okay? And you take these physical materials and you put them together and you build something, okay? This is very important, so God had to first make a, a, a universe. He had to first, he spoke the universe into being. It says that very clearly in the Bible, but it says here that he built heaven. He spoke the earth, and he spoke the universe, he built heaven. He first had to make a universe with stuff in it like wood and metal and stone and brick. He first had to speak that universe into being, and then he took materials out of that physical universe, and he built heaven. Okay? We need to think of heaven in radically different terms. This is not an alien world totally separate from this universe. I could read you many passages to confirm this. I want to look at one here in Psalm 104, which uh, is going to take us a little deeper. 
And a fantastic passage. Psalm 104, written by David. It's a parallel. For those of you uh, who want to, you know, just a little bit of background, so you can go and read it this week. Psalm 104 is David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He writes a parallel passage where we get new information about creation, but it's a parallel passage to Genesis chapter 1. The whole passage is about creation, just like Genesis 1. Okay? And in that passage, if we read the first four verses, we're going to find out something very interesting. Because in Genesis 1, we see God creating the earth. In Psalm 104, we see God creating the earth again, but we also see him creating heaven. Okay? Very, very important. So, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers in the waters. I'm going to stop there. He lays, God lays the beams of his chambers, his dwelling place, his house, his palace, his temple. It serves all of those functions. But God's private dwelling place. We have this idea, again, that God created the universe, physical, okay? But then he lives outside of the universe. He lives in heaven because he doesn't want to live in a physical world. He made the physical universe, then he lives outside of the universe. And when we pray, he sometimes pokes his finger or head into the physical universe. But other than that, he's separate from it, okay? But what we see here is that God made the physical universe and then he moved in. Okay? Now, I'm not saying God needs. I want to just get this out of the way right off the top. God does not need the physical universe in order to exist. He existed before there was a universe. He existed before heaven. He existed all. He doesn't need any of these things to exist. But what I want you to see here is that God loves physicality. It says very clearly in this creation passage, God did not create the universe and then he stays outside and poke in every once in a while when we pray. It says here that he made the universe, then he took beams. You ever think about this? God's private dwelling place is not some spiritual wispy place. It's made with beams. I don't know what those beams are made of. It doesn't say, but I imagine them as massive wooden beams. But he lives in this huge temple palace complex made out of gigantic pieces of wood, okay? He made the universe, and then he said, mm, and he grew himself some massive trees, and said, those ones are for my house. Then he built himself a physical house, and he moved in to our physical universe. God is not just outside of our universe as we think in our common Greek thinking. Very, very important. It says here, in fact, that he stretches out the heavens like a tent. I love that picture. He stretches out the heavens like he had this idea. I want to make a physical universe. And he thinks it's so good. It's, he thinks it's such a good idea. He's like, I'm going to live in it. So he stretches out the stars, the heavens, and the galaxies as a tent above himself. A couple of weeks ago, my kids and I, we stretched out the afghans and sheets and blankets from our beds to, to make a tent in, in, over half of our living room. And then we went inside there and, and we pretended to have tea. And, and I, I didn't really like that part. It's kind of girly, but when you have daughters, you've got to do it. And uh, we read books, and we had a fun time, right? But we stretched out these blankets. Now, when you stretch out blankets and afghans and stuff, and you make a tent, you don't make it and then stand outside and look at your tent. It looks horrible. It looks like a refugee camp from the outside. <laughs> you make it so you can go into it, okay? And that's what this passage is saying. God stretched out the heavens like a tent. He, he doesn't need physicality, but he made it because he loves it. And then he took beams out of his creation and built himself a physical house placed his beams in the waters. Now, what does it mean he laid the beams of his chambers in the waters? And this is one of those obscure little phrases that most of us modern-day Christians, we just read right over it. We don't even think about it. We just think it means nothing. You ask someone, what does it mean? Well, nothing, okay? And I want to tell you right now that it's not nothing. David is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not getting paid by how many pages he writes, okay? It's not like, oh, I've got to fill in some lines here. So the beams are in the waters, okay? And he adds in, in the waters, okay? It's not what's happening here. When David writes, he lays the beams of his chambers in the waters. He writes in the waters because he has a specific picture in his mind. In the spirit, he is seeing something. He is seeing where God built his house, his physical house. And so he's making reference. Now, all of David's Jewish listeners, anyone who, the Jews who would have sung this psalm or listened to this psalm or read this psalm, they all would have known immediately what David was talking about. But today, as modern Christians, most of us do not know what are these waters. And so I want to take you, I want to show you, and I'm going to show you what this passage is saying and what David is picturing here. And it's just another chink in the fence that you're going to have to leave behind your Greek thinking about heaven forever. 
in the waters. Well, I told you before that Psalm 104 is a parallel to Genesis 1. And so this is actually an explicit reference back to Genesis 1. So let's go back to the creation story, shall we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And you're going to see creation. I mean, we've read, I mean, some of you are going, I mean, you've read the creation story, heard it since you were a kid, some of you, hundreds of times. But the interesting thing is we tend to skip over the first bunch of verses. We don't pay any attention to it until it gets to the animal and the plants and the people. Oh, and then God created the animals and plants and people. And we don't actually really pay attention to what's happening in the first few verses right at the very beginning. And we're going to find a clue in there to what are these waters that God put the beams of his chambers in there, all right? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'll just stop it for just a moment. You'll never, after, after looking at this passage, I don't want you ever to look at this passage the same way again. We always just view that first sentence as, well, God created the sky and the earth. Yes, heavens includes that. But from now on, you need to think of this also as not just in the beginning, God created the sky and the earth. It's in the, it's in the beginning, God created heaven, also heaven, heaven, and the sky, the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Verse 2, let me show it to you. Verse 2, we have day 1, the earth was without form and void. What that means is there was no earth. The earth and the universe don't get created until verse 10. That's day three. We're still in day one. The earth was out for, form and void means that there was no earth. There was no planets. There was no sun. There was no stars. There was nothing, okay? There was nothing. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, okay? There's this thing called the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, now remember, it's going to make sense now in just a few minutes. David said that God built the, the, the beams of his chambers into the waters. All right? Now what you need to understand about creation is at the beginning, before there was a universe, there was deep waters. All right? Now some of you are ready. We're going to ask a question. Where did those come from? Okay? So let me tell you the answer right now so you don't have to email me. I don't know. <laughs> this is just God telling Moses what happened at the beginning it wasn't like there was nothing and then he made a universe. No, no. At the beginning, there was waters. Deep waters. Okay? Verse 3. It's like what happens on day one in these waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, there's no sun yet. There's no stars giving light. He's creating the physics here of light photons and light waves and light energy. He's creating light itself, but there's still no bodies. There's no universe. There's no earth. There's deep waters, and the physics of light have been now created. Let there be light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, okay? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So that's the first day. That's all that God does. We've got deep waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the deep waters. He creates light. There's nothing else. There's still no planets, no sun, no moon, no earth. Okay? Day number two, verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. That's day two. Day one, we've got deep waters. He creates light. Day, or that's day one. Day two, he separates the waters top from bottom, and you have this empty expanse in between. Day three, he's going to put the universe and the earth in that empty expanse. This is the creation story. Okay? I want you to think about this. Now, if you want to imagine it, uh, here's a good way for you to imagine it. Imagine you have a, a bathtub full of water. Okay? And you take a balloon. You put the balloon under the water. I mean, obviously, the, the little the mouth thing coming up. And now you hold the balloon underwater, and now you blow it up. <laughs> like that, okay? Not quite hyperventilating like that, but long, good, deep breaths. And then you, you blow this thing up. You get a big balloon, but you're still holding it underwater. Now what happens as you blow up this balloon under the water is you've got this expanding pocket of air. And as this balloon gets bigger, it's pushing the waters apart. And it's separating the waters on top from the waters on the bottom. And you've got waters all around this balloon, and then this empty bubble in between. That is what God did on day two of creation. And then on day three, into that bubble, he puts the universe, the galaxies and the stars and the sun and the moon and the earth, okay? Now again, our, our modern minds recoil at the thought of this, okay? Because the Jews, so now you see a picture of what the Jews thought of the universe. The Jews always saw the universe as being surrounded by waters, okay? Our modern minds recoil at this, and we say there's, there's not waters around the universe, okay? Well, let me just... Uh, disabuse you of this idea that we actually know a lot, okay? 
Um, we think that, hey, you know, man has gone to the moon and man has made big telescopes, okay? I mean, we've gone to the moon. Do you know how big the universe is? Going to the moon is like going microscopic, one little tiny, less than a millionth of an inch compared to how big the universe is, okay? We've got telescopes, and we can kind of stare out there and see little bright spots of light all over in the darkness. But no scientist today can tell you what is on the outside of the universe. It's impossible. So God was there in the beginning. I'm just going to go with what he said. He said there was waters, and he went, separated them, and then put the universe in there. So I'm going to go with it, okay? And this is how the Jews viewed the universe. Now, if we go back to Psalm chapter 104, David says that God built the beams of his chamber. So he built a physical place. He created the universe. Then he took pieces of wood to build his private house, and he put those beams in the waters. David is saying some things here, isn't he? He's telling us where God's house is. He's telling us that God's house is at the top of the universe because the beams of his chambers jut into the waters. That's what David is telling us. And again, our modern minds, our Greek-thinking minds, no, heaven is alien world, universe separate. They're two separate places. And David is saying, no, heaven is in creation. It is in the universe. It's created with the stuff of this universe, and it's in this universe. Now, of course, again, we, we recoiled against this, but this consistent teaching of Scripture, and I've already showed you many verses and will throughout this series, is that heaven is a created physical place. It's built with physical materials, and it exists within creation. And the moment you begin to realize this, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of events in, in the Bible start to make sense. Let me give you three examples. First of all, Revelation 21, very famous passage. We're also going to look at that one in depth next week. Revelation 21, uh, almost all of you have read this or heard it, heard it many times. Famous vision where John the Apostle sees at the end of time, heaven and earth coming together, right? The new heavens, the new earth. We're going to live on the earth, new heaven, new earth together for all of eternity, okay? And he sees this happening. What does he see? He sees a city coming down out of heaven, a physical city, and he sees it coming down to the earth. Okay? He sees it coming down to the earth. Now let's do a little bit of rocket science here. I'm going to just tell you something totally mind-blowing. Okay? Are you ready? Why did the heavenly city come down? I'll tell you why. Because it was up. <laughs> is that mind-blowing or is that mind-blowing? I know people are going to be talking in the coffee shops this week around this town. Chris is saying some weird things over there at Southland. Okay? I'm not the one who's weird. Okay? People are saying heaven's an alien world. I'm saying heaven physically comes down to earth. If it comes down, all I'm saying is it was up. It's up there somewhere. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, and I hope that most of you are, you're going to be in your resurrected body when this happens, and Jesus is going to say, today's the day the Father's coming down with the city. So we'll all be out there watching, I'm sure. And you will see this little thing. It'll be a speck way on the horizon. I never saw that star before. It's coming closer and closer. That's not a star. Whoa, that's not a planet. That thing is huge. Closer, closer, closer. Coming through the atmosphere and down onto the earth. It's coming down from somewhere. If it was coming from another dimension, it would not come down out of the sky. It would materials. Whoa, where did this thing come from? It's glowing. It's kind of heat because it had to come from this other dimension. And then, whoo, it's here. It just materializes like something out of Star Trek. No. It comes down because it was up. That's just what the Bible says. It's up there somewhere. Just like David said, he laid the beams of his chambers in the waters at the top of the universe. And at the end of, of this age, not the end of time, as we'll see in just a moment, but at the end of this age, it's going to come down. Okay? Many other places like this in Scripture. For example, Acts chapter 1. Go back and read it. So many of these things, because of Greek thinking, we just, whoosh, just, we just blow right past them. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes back to heaven in front of the disciples. What happens? Does he kind of fade in and out like a bad TV reception for a little while and then phew, he's gone in a flash of light? No. Kind of like he says, whoa, Jesus, where are you going? And he's there and he's not there and, and then he's gone. No. They're standing there with him. He's there physically and then he physically starts to go up. And he just keeps going up and up and up and up. And why is he going up? Because he's going up to heaven. And heaven is actually up there somewhere. And so the disciples all watch him go up to heaven, not disappear into this other dimension. They watch him go up to heaven, and an angel says, what are you guys looking at? And they say, well, we're watching Jesus go bye-bye. 
And the angel says, and then the angel just says to them, Men of Galilee, this same Jesus who you see going up to heaven will come back down in the same way that he went. There's up and down travel between heaven and this earth because heaven is up there somewhere. It is a physical place that is actually in our physical universe. It was created in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. It is not a separate alien world. His, his house is made with beams from this world and this universe. And that is essential. Second Kings chapter 2 would be another example. Elijah and Elisha are together and Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind of fire. So let's do a quick recap now of what we've looked at so far. Some very basic stuff. Heaven has not always existed forever and ever. It was created and built at a certain point in time. Heaven is built with physical materials. Heaven exists in this creation. Now, there's a number of huge implications from that, okay? I don't have time to even go into nearly all of them. I had to cross a few of them off because I didn't have time in this message. But we'll just look at three now in this message, all right? First of all, and we've already looked at the first one, is heaven physically exists somewhere in creation. The second one I want to talk about is there will be time in heaven. There is time right now in heaven, and there will be time always forever in heaven, okay? One of the weirdest ideas that Christians have got, and it's totally Greek, is this idea that heaven, again, is a spiritual alien world totally separate from this universe. It's always existed, and there's no time there, Okay? And the first thing I want to say is, well, first of all, if, ta- if heaven was created at a, a certain point in time, so that means there was a time when there wasn't a heaven, and then at a point in time God designed it and built it, and now that time is in the past, the fact that there's a past, present, and future in heaven means there's time there. The fact that heaven exists in our physical universe means there must be time there. And yet many Christians hold on to this or cherish this view and, and some of them even get emotional, and time shall be no more, and they're excited. And I just think to myself, frankly, that is hideous. What would a world look like that had no time? How can you look forward to going to a world where there is no time? If there's no time, that means there's no before and there's no after. Isn't that true? If there's no time, there's no before and there's no after. That means when you go to heaven, it's just this one huge eternal moment where everything that's ever going to happen all happens together at one, in one jumbled mess and carries on for trillions of years in this one eternal moment. That's not how heaven is. Heaven has time. There is before and after. In fact, you couldn't have a conversation with someone if there wasn't time. Because in order to say something to someone, you have to speak a sentence. In order to speak a sentence, you have to say one word before another, and another word after another. And if there's words before and after, then there has to be time. And how could there be music in heaven if there's no time? How can you have music? I mean, now, I have no rhythm, but that's a different thing, okay? I have no rhythm, that's true, okay? And most white guys don't, okay? That's true, also true. Okay, except maybe Ray Yoder. But, um, but there's before and after. But how can you have music? How can you have notes going up and down and sing one bar and then another one? There has to be time for that. Okay, there has to be time. But let me prove it to you. Again, the, this idea that there could be a place where there is no time is not biblical at all. It's a Greek idea. It's also in some of the other Eastern religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, and ancient Greek philosophy imagined this nirvana-type place where there would be no time. It was just one big, never-ending, eternal moment. It's not biblical, though. But I'll prove it to you in one verse. Okay, and I could show you many verses. I'll prove it to you in one verse that there is 100% certainly time in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, John gets taken up to heaven to see what's happening there. And then the rest of the book of Revelation, he's, you know, he's seen stuff in heaven. Okay? In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, he tells us something about heaven. And uh, we'll read it here. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven... For about half an hour. Maybe you didn't catch that, okay? <laughs> there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. How do you have half an hour of silence in heaven if there's no time in heaven? There is time in heaven, okay? Now, one little rabbit trail before we leave this is uh, this verse, uh, a number of theologians have, have become convinced that uh, men will get to heaven half an hour before women based on this verse. And you can see why. I just, some of you are slower than others. 
I used that one in the last series, and I'm going to use it in all my Heaven series till the end of this age, all right? So anyway, now how did people ever get this idea that there would be no more time? And there's this phrase, and some of you have been exposed to some of the old-time, you know, crusades and evangelism preaching and stuff, good stuff. Godly man preaching the Word of God, winning many people to Christ, and I, this is not against any of them or those crusades at all. But sometimes, some of them would get a little carried away, and they'd be preaching about heaven and going to heaven, and it was all excellent, excellent stuff, but they would just get a little bit carried away, and then, you know, towards the end of their message, and time shall be no more. Well, where did they get that? And it got popularized in the Christian culture. It even got into a famous song, the roll, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. I'm going to put it up there. I will not sing it to you, okay? That wouldn't be good for you or me, all right? But when the roll is called up yonder, and here's the song, right? When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks. How can you have a morning if time shall be no more? But anyway. <laughs> and the morning breaks, eternal, bright, and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. So there's this, this idea that came into the popular Christian thinking that there won't be time in heaven and that idea is not good for looking forward to heaven because you and I do not want to go to a place where there is no time. You and I do not want to go to a place like that. You see, you say, well, surely there must be a scripture where all this is coming from. You know, they don't have hymns without, it's, it, uh, there must be a scripture for this. There is one verse in the Bible in one translation, very poorly translated and taken out of context, where you can find this and nowhere else. And I'll take you there right now. And I'll show you that the fact that time shall be no more is nowhere in the scripture. It's in the hymn, but it's not in the Bible. And I'll show you where they, but I'll show you where they did get the idea from. Revelation 10, verses 5 to 7. In the King James Version, you will only find this in the King James Version. Okay? And the angels swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are, Therein, okay? Why? <laughs> that there should be time no longer. This is the only place you will find it anywhere in Scripture, and you'll only find it in the King James Version. But I want you to notice the context. It's poorly translated out of the Greek, first of all, but even when it's poorly translated, I want you to see the context. But in the days of the seventh, or of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. I want you, first of all, context. Revelation 10 has nothing to do with the fact that there will be no time after heaven comes down to earth. Nothing. He's not talking about life in heaven. Revelation 10 comes in the context of a long uh, revelation that the angel is giving to John about the seven trumpet judgments which will happen in the tribulation. And in between trumpet number 6 and trumpet number 7, we have chapter 10, and the angel is giving to John some information about trumpet number 7, trumpet judgment number 7. He is not talking about life in heaven forevermore after Jesus comes back. He's talking about the seventh trumpet. And what he's saying is that time will be no longer, there will be no delay. He's saying there will, at the moment the seventh trumpet sounds, no more delay, Jesus comes back and we get resurrected bodies and the mystery of God is completed. There will be no more time. Time no longer. It does not mean that we'll live in heaven forever and ever and Jesus will somehow magically obliterate time. No. The time is up. There will be no more delay. When the seventh trumpet sounds, we get the rapture, we get the resurrection, Jesus comes back and the Antichrist is defeated. And that is in fact the better translation of the Greek and every modern translation does not put time will be no longer. It puts and there will be no more delay because it's about the delay. It's about the time between the seventh trumpet and Jesus coming back. In fact, the new King James Version, which is the newer King James Version, okay, comes after the older King James Version, does not say time no longer. It says there will be no more delay. And the NASB, I could show you many translations, but I'll show you the NASB because it's generally accepted to be the most accurate word-for-word -word modern English translation. Look what it says. And the angel swore by him who lives forever, we'll just skip ahead there, that there will be delay no longer. There will be delay, no delay between the seventh trumpet and Jesus coming back. Time's up. Not Jesus is obliterating time forever and ever in heaven. All right? Now you say, Chris, why are you making such a big deal about the fact that there will be time in heaven? Okay? I'll tell you why I'm making a big deal of it, because this is essential to your vision and picture of what heaven is so you can look forward to it. 
If there's no time in heaven, then heaven is a static place. You will never learn anything. You will never grow. You will never explore. You will never take on new skills. You will never find new relationships. There will be no morning, afternoon, evening, night. Everything will always be the same. If there's no time, it's one static moment for trillions and trillions of years forever and ever. And it's because of this thinking that many Christians have gotten that idea about heaven. Many of us, if you trapped us in a corner and said, what is your picture of heaven like? We would have a picture of heaven something like this. You get to heaven, and it's somewhere kind of the equivalent of 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's very bright. And it's 20 degrees Celsius. It's not hot, not cold. You feel nothing. It's boring. And you're in the temple of God, and for the rest of the trillions and trillions and trillions of years, forever and ever, it never changes. It's still 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's still bright. It's still that exact same temperature. There's no seasons. And all we do is sing and sing and sing and sing and sing forever and ever. And you know what? Very few people on earth today want to go to a place like that. And so they say, well, it's better than hell, but I'm going to focus on the here and now. And that isn't heaven at all. The fact that there is time in heaven means that, that heaven is dynamic, not static. Heaven is a dynamic place, not a static place. You will learn things there continually forever and ever. You will not be the same at the beginning as you are 10 trillion years in. You will learn things about God continually. He is infinitely amazing. You'll have been there a trillion years and one day he'll tell us a joke that we've never heard before. Or he'll tell us something about himself and we'll go, oh, I never knew that about you. That is incredible. I've been here one trillion years and that is still a nugget. And we will learn and learn and learn and learn because there's time. And you know what? And there'll be a cycle to life. There will be morning, afternoon, evening. There will be seasons. I do not think there will be a Manitoba winter. And if there is, I'm not going anywhere near that place, okay? <laughs> the place where the Manitoba winter is, all right? Heaven, yes. But, uh, but there will be seasons, okay? There will be days when you work very hard. And there will be days when you worship all day. Oh, and those will be the best. You'll just be in the presence of God, enjoying him. And there will be days when you work and worship. And there will be days when you have a Sabbath rest. And there will be days when you learn. And there will be days when you travel. When there, will be, there will be months when you have a specific assignment. And things, there will be an ebb and flow to life in heaven. It is not this static, same brightness, same temperature, same activity for trillions and trillions of years without end. And you say, okay, I, I, I like that, Chris, but please show it to me in Scripture. Okay, I will. Isaiah, start with Isaiah 66, 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth, so he's talking about the new heavens and new earth. This is after the, the heavenly city comes down to earth. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Okay? Now this, this passage is loaded with information about heaven. I want to notice three things. First of all, from Sabbath to Sabbath, there's still a seven-day cycle in heaven. There's still a Sabbath. And why would we ever think that there wouldn't be a Sabbath in heaven? When God created the universe, He created it in six days, and then He rested on the seventh day. He thought it was a good idea. It's not like God invented the seven-day cycle after Adam and Eve sinned. They sinned and he said, and now I'm going to punish you with day and night forever, you bad people. God himself loves a cycle. He loves the ebb and flow, early and late, night and day. And so in heaven, we will celebrate Sabbath to Sabbath. There's still a Sabbath day, which means there's a rest day. And what are you resting from? Well, the other six days, you're doing something else from Sabbath to Sabbath. Okay? Second thing I want you to notice is that all flesh goes to worship him on the Sabbath and also on the new moon. On Sabbath and on the Sabbath, all flesh gathers before him. Now, we generally have this idea that heaven is one never-ending massive gathering. It's not true. There is an ebb and flow from Sabbath to Sabbath. On the Sabbath, we all get together. It could be a billion of us, plus millions and millions of angels, maybe a billion angels yet. Oh, those are going to be worship services on the Sabbath. And we'll gather before the throne room of God, and it will be, oh, the pleasure, the adoration, the magnificence. These will be incredible gatherings, but they will end, and then we'll go and do other things for God. 
It's not just one big gathering. From Sabbath to Sabbath, there are gatherings. Now you say, well, I know somewhere in the Bible it says there's 24-7 worship around the throne. You're right. And there are a couple of verses we'll come across yet now in a few minutes too. There certainly is 24-7 worship around the throne of God at all times because he's worth it. He is so wonderful that it would be a crime if at any point in time there wasn't a bunch of beings around his throne enjoying him. It'd be a waste. So there's always beings around him, angels and people, worshiping him forever and ever. Yes, that's true. But it's only on the Sabbath to Sabbath and the new moon that it's everyone. In between, there's an ebb and flow. I don't know how that works. But it's just the beauty of heaven. It's not just one big gathering that goes forever. These gatherings are awesome precisely because there is this ebb and flow. And in between, we can only speculate. Yes, there will be worship at all times. Maybe there's shifts. You know, one month, it's you and your family. You know, one month, it'll be the Dirksen clan for a whole bunch of generations. And I'm having lots of babies because I want to have a bunch of Dirksons up there worshiping with me, okay? And uh, I encourage some of you, never, you know, I'm going to get in trouble if I go down this road. I'm going to leave it. (laughs) I'm going to leave that one, okay? But maybe, you know, this month, it's the Dirksen clan and a few other clans for a whole bunch of generations. It's your month. You're on the night shift this month in the throne room of God. And so you tell all your friends, yes, this month I'm in the throne room of God every night worshiping God. Oh, I can hardly wait. Or maybe there's some kind of weekly cycle and, you know, Tuesday from 8 to 12, that's your shift. Okay? But there's an ebb and flow on a Sabbath. We're all going to gather magnificent worship and the rest of the time, I don't know. But it's dynamic. There's change. Ebb and flow to life. Shifts, those sorts of things. Third thing I want you to notice is is that from new moon to new moon. So I'm going to Just give you again another real groundbreaking statement here. From new moon to new moon means that there is a moon in heaven. When heaven and earth come together, there's a moon. And and there's still a lunar calendar. You can have new moon to new moon every month, okay? So you have a moon. And if there's a moon, there is a nighttime. And again, why is that so horrid? Some Christians are thinking, I can hardly wait till there's no more night. Why? I can hardly wait till there's no more sin and death. Yes. Heaven will be much better when heaven comes down to earth. It's going to be much better than it is now because there won't be any cancer and there won't be any diabetes. And if you're here today and you're blind or you're deaf or you're handicapped in some way, when you get your resurrected body, you will have 100% perfection. And there will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more broken relationships or divorces or any of those things. But why do we throw out the baby with the bath water and we throw out all the physical stuff and then people tack on, we won't eat anymore. We won't sleep anymore. There won't be any more night. Wait a minute. Hold those things back. I like those things. There will be night in heaven. Again, some of you are shocked by that because you're sure that there is a verse in the Bible that says there isn't. And there isn't a verse that says that. Let me show you proof that there is night and day in heaven. Revelation 4 verse 8 says this. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings or full of eyes or all around and within. And day and what? And day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night. They still count off day and night in heaven. And they will forever. Okay? Now I want to take, I'm going to show you another passage in just a moment, day and night in heaven. I just want to take one little rabbit trail because some of you are looking at this verse and you're going, I thought you said we wouldn't worship every second of every day singing for the rest of eternity, but this verse seems to say that we will because they never cease. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, it's talking here about seraphim, not human beings. These are seraphim. The seraphim are sort of like the worship leaders of heaven. They were made for that. They were made to be around the throne room and they are always in scripture at the center of the worship that goes on in the throne room of God. Okay? This is not humans. We have an ebb and flow. We have other assignments and stuff. The seraphim around the throne room of God. But even at that, This verse is not saying that every second of every day for all of eternity, the seraphim never stopped to say, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. This verse is not saying that. And I'll tell you how I know it's not saying that. In Revelation 8.1, we saw that there was silence in heaven for half an hour. You can't have silence in heaven for half an hour and have the seraphim shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I could show you other passages in Isaiah where the seraphim are doing other things besides saying holy, holy, holy. So this verse is not saying that they say this without ceasing. In fact, there's going to be times in heaven when God speaks to us and no one will interrupt God. They will not be shouting holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty when God speaks to us. 
And God will speak to us and it'll be the best. Oh, we'll be in the throne of God and he'll, he will speak to us. He has a sense of humor. He has a sense his love and truth and wisdom. And when he speaks, we will all only listen and drink it up. Oh, yes, he's talking to us. Be fantastic. So this verse is not saying that they never stop. What it's saying is this worship, there's this ebb and flow of worship, constantly creatures worshiping, but it's not ceaseless noise. There's an ebb and flow. And because God is so spectacular on his throne, there's so much pleasure and adoration when you see him. It's like, wow. And so regularly, day and night, they come back to the same thing. He speaks a word and everybody goes, oh. And then holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we just come back to it. We can't even say anything else. And then more singing is going on in different songs. And then God speaks a word again to us. And we go, oh, holy. And we just fall on our faces. And it just comes back to that over and over and over again. Because he's so amazing. And the setting is so spectacular. But the idea here is not of every second of every day saying the same formula again and again. That was another rabbit trail. Let's go to the next verse here. We're talking about day and night. Proof for day and night. Uh, in heaven from Revelation. Revelation 17, or 7, verse 15. Therefore they, the tribulation martyrs, are before the throne of God and serve him day and what? Night. In his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I'm going to come back to this verse in just a couple of minutes. That's where I want to finish. But for now, I just want you to notice that there is day and night in heaven. Okay? Now again, that is good. You want that for eternity. You want a cycle. You want a rhythm. Okay? And again, you say, I know that there is a passage somewhere that says there's no night. So I'm going to show you the one passage in the Scripture which many Christians casually read over and they misread when they read over and they think that it teaches there's no sun or moon in heaven, therefore there is no day or night. Let me read it to you. It's only in one place. Revelation chapter 21, we'll start in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So you see in heaven and earth coming together, the new heavens and new earth. And the city, okay, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. I want you to notice that first of all. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. It does not say, people read over this and they say, there's no sun or moon on the new heavens and new earth. That is not what it says. It says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. I want you to know a second thing. It does not say the whole world will not have need of the sun. It says the city, only the city, will have no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Okay? Now, the city is just one place on earth, and the earth is still round. Okay? It's not like when the holy city comes down, now the earth goes, we go to a flat earth. It's the same universe, the same earth. The city comes down, it takes up one place on the earth. There's still many nations and cities outside of the heavenly city all around the earth. The earth is still rotating and there's still a sun and a moon. But the city itself has no need of the sun or the moon because God himself is in the city. And as we'll look at next week, he's at the top. And I'll show you that next week very clearly. But he's at the top. And because he's at the top, he's the one who made the whole universe. He's the one who made all the stars which shine so brightly. And so, of course, he himself is bright and clothed in majesty and light. And so, of course, he just gives light to that city. And so, uh, there's no need of the sun or moon there because it's always bright. But they're still counting off day and night there. It's just that at nighttime, it's not dark in the city. Let me read the rest of this passage to you, following verses there. By its light will the nations walk. Again, notice that there's still many nations around the world outside of the heavenly city. Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth, there's still kings and governments and all this sort of stuff, and they come back to the city regularly, okay? We've got these huge gatherings, worship gatherings, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. They're still counting day and night, because by day, they leave it open, implying that at night, they shut. But now, John is still describing something he just can't even hardly get his mind around. It's so amazing. So he has to end at the end. They don't shut the gates during the day, and don't forget there's no night. In other words, when it's night, it's still not dark in the city. It's very, very important. All right, now I want to close this message off. Next week, we'll look again at more details about what is heaven. Today, I just want to look at the fact that it's a created place. There's time there. It's dynamic. You will learn do all those sorts of things. There's days and months and weeks and different gatherings. 
Next week we'll look at, at uh, some other things in depth that are just really wonderful. Now I want to go back to Revelation 7, verse 15. And uh, we just passed over this verse before looking at the day and night thing, but I, wanna, I want to show you something else here about motivation and reward. A lot of us, when we think about uh, reward in heaven, we think of a big house and lots of treasure. And yes, God loves those, that is part. He's giving out treasure. Yes, he loves to give out treasure. He loves to give out a big house and all kinds of different gifts. And if you live for him here on this earth, he will give you those kinds of things. That's why he says in Matthew, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Okay? But there's a different kind of treasure in heaven that's even better than that kind of treasure. And it's called access directly to God's throne room. Access directly to God's presence. And we read about it here in Revelation 7.15. It says, Therefore they, the tribulation martyrs, people who go through persecution in this lifetime and remain faithful to the end. They love Jesus to the end. Look what, look what their reward is. They will certainly have treasure in big houses, yes. But look what it says about the reward here. Therefore they, these martyrs, these people who are faithful in persecution and tribulation, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Okay? Now what does that mean they serve him day and night in his temple? Does that mean that they will never get to go out of his temple ever, even for a breath of fresh air? No. We know from Revelation 3 that everyone who goes to heaven is going to get to go and eat from the tree of life. And you'll see at the end of this series where the tree of life is, but it's not in the temple. So they will leave. They will eat from the tree of life. They will get to explore the world and, and carry out assignments and do stuff for God. So what does it mean that they serve in the temple? Well, let me use an analogy. Any of you who watches the news and, and if you watch uh, news about you know, American politics, sometimes they'll, they'll use a phrase like this. They'll say that so-and-so has served in the White House for two years or so-and-so has been in the White House for two years. Now, when they say that, do they mean that so-and-so has physically been inside the White House and not come out even for one second for two years? No. And you don't even think that. When they say that so-and-so has served in the White House for two years, what they mean is they have, for, for two years, they've been on the, the president's team. They serve directly. They have direct access to the president. They don't get their directions from the president told so-and-so, told so-and-so, told so-and-so. They serve in the White House. Their main, they have access 24-7 into the White House. They'll have a special card and security clearance. They probably have an office in the White House, and they have direct access to the president, and he gives them orders. These are privileged people. And they might travel all over the world, some of them, carrying out the president's assignments and commands, but they serve in the White House in the sense that they have direct access into the White House and into the president's uh, presence. That is the reward promised here for those who are faithful under tribulation and persecution in this lifetime. See, when you get to heaven, people have this idea that heaven is just kind of this utopia. Everybody's equal. You just, just get to heaven. Just get to heaven. We're all in the same playing field. We all go, get to go see Jesus whenever we want. We all get to go into Jesus' presence whenever we want. False. It's not in the Bible. It's not this massive utopian commune. It's not a hippie commune where everybody's equal and there's no leadership. There's government, there's kings, there's rulers, there's people underneath rulers. And some people will have access all the time. All flesh will gather occasionally for massive worship services. Yes, all flesh. But only some people will have this kind of access day and night into the very presence of God, the best place to be in the universe. And if you think for one moment that you're going to just coast to this lifetime and live for yourself and be selfish, and maybe you give a big check to church every once in a while, but you have a bigger check that you spend on yourself, and you live selfish, 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 and you pay lip service to Jesus, and you've got Christianity as an insurance policy in your back pocket, do not think for one moment that you will be at the same place of status and power and honor in heaven as some poor Christian Chinese brother or sister who spent half their life in jail and didn't see their family a lot of the time, or some Muslim convert who was hideously tortured or sexually assaulted because of Jesus. You will not be on the same level playing field. You will be at the bottom, and they will be at the top. They will be the people of power and influence and status in heaven, and they will have direct access into the throne room of God. And they will get directions from him. They won't get directions from the king, because there's going to be kings on the earth then. And there's going to be lower than kings, and people taking directions from all of them. These people will get directions from God. 
And I can't think of a better reward for all of eternity. Because you know, the more that I walk with Jesus, the more I realize even one word from him directly to me is life. Even when he rebukes me, it's wonderful. Have you found that to be true? I would rather hear a rebuke from Jesus than hear nothing from him. Because even his rebukes bring life. Even when he says, Chris, you are sinning. Just the fact that he says, Chris, you go, oh, thank you. Thanks for setting me straight, Jesus. I'm sorry I'm coming after you. Just the fact that he speaks to you is life. Can you imagine going to heaven and instead of getting instructions from someone, from someone, from someone, that you got access in the throne room of God and he says, Chris, go get so-and-so a glass of water. Oh, thanks for asking me to do something. Chris, I want you to help me with this. Or Bob or Bill or what's a girl's name? Jill. <laughs> Ruth, I don't know, but... Would you come over here? I want you to do this. I want you to go travel over there and carry to that nation a message from me. But you have access. You're not getting directions from someone else. You go into his throne room. You have the security pass. That's where your office and main base of operations is. And he talks to you and tells you what to do. That's one of the greatest rewards you can get. Now, as you read this passage, some of you go, well, well, it doesn't apply to us because we're in Canada and there's no persecution here. So, I mean, we, we, this one will never apply to us. Here's what I want to tell you. This passage is specifically addressed to people who are persecuted, but it doesn't say other people can't get the reward. It's just an encouragement to those who are being persecuted. But it doesn't say that other people can't get it. You can have it too, but the key is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Do you ever just, do you love Jesus or do you live for yourself? Again, is Jesus in your back pocket? You come to church once a week and that's good enough for you? Or do you have times where you just weep before him as you worship him, as you pray for lost people, as you get your, his heart for the world? Do you ever talk to him? Is your heart on the same page as his is? I'm not asking, do you give a big che- check to church? Because some people, again, if you have lots of money and you give a big check, you're not, not necessarily giving that much. Jesus said the widow that threw in two pennies, she gave a lot. Do you, do you give till it hurts of your time and your energy and your money to the kingdom? If you're faithful, this reward can be for you too. But you know what's one of the things I've got to just smash down is we have this barrier, we have this thinking, it's so stubborn that I just have to get to heaven. If I just squeak in, that's enough because everybody's going to be happy there. Who cares if I'm at the top or the bottom? Who cares if I have access to the throne or if I'm a landscaper on the far ends of, of Antarctica, okay, in heaven, on the new heavens and new earth, Who cares? I'll just be happy to be there because there's no crying there, there's no death, there's no sickness, so it's just fine if I squeak in. That's what a lot of us think deep down. So let me ask you this. If you're a parent and you have teenagers, and one of your teenagers is going to to go to high school, and they say to you, Mom and Dad, um, I'm just going to do barely enough to squeak by. I'm going to go through high school. I mean, all I need is a 50. I'm getting a 50. I will not apply myself. I'm going to spend all my time playing video games and wasting my time on useless things. And you're like, your jaw is like, and after I get out of high school, mom and dad, because you're like, well, you won't be able to get a job then. I don't care. I'm going to spend the rest of my life working some know-nothing part-time job. I don't care where. And I want to live paycheck to paycheck. I want to just barely make do. I want to waste my life. I want to make nothing of myself. Mom and dad, that's my goals for the rest of my life. Now, how many of you would like that? Okay? Many of you aren't even smiling right now because you just had that conversation with one of your kids this week. <laughs> you wouldn't like that. Is that a noble goal? It's not a noble goal to just waste your life, to just scrape by. But they say to you, Mom and Dad, don't talk to me. I'm just happy to be alive. I'm just so happy to be alive that I don't need anything more from life than just to scrape by. And you would say, that is a terrible goal for life. So let me ask you something, parents. Why is it not noble for your kid to scrape by in this little lifetime, which only lasts 70 or 80 years, but it's okay to you to, for you to shoot for scraping by in eternity, which goes on forever? Why is it okay for you to scrape? For, why is it not okay for your kid to scrape by in this lifetime, which is temporary, but it's okay for you to think in your head, I'm going to live for right now and just scrape into heaven? Never mind the fact that if you're one of these people that you just think you are going to just scrape in, you might, not, you might miss it entirely. 
Because if there's no fruit of salvation in your life, I don't care if you said a prayer, if there's no fruit of salvation in your life, there's no guarantee you ever really got saved. But even imagining you are one of those people that did, as Paul said, that you got into heaven, like he says in Corinthians, where he says, as one escaping through the flames, you got singed on the way in. You barely made it. Even assuming that you are one of those people, you think, I'll be happy just to be there. You know what's going to happen? The moment you lay eyes on Jesus and he looks you in the eye, you are going to wish like you never wished for anything before that you had not wasted your life here. You will feel the weight. There will be a pierce pang of regret. I don't know how long it'll last, but it will pierce you deep when you see how amazing he is that you could have ever dared to waste your life here on earth and not think about him. It's not just about scraping in. It is going to matter to you forever whether you were at the top or whether you were at the bottom. It will matter. I want to say one other thing about this passage as well. Again, you look at this, you say, well, it doesn't apply to us. We don't get persecuted here. And to that I say, our time is coming. Our time is coming. Persecution. You go around the world right now in the places where Christians are persecuted. Persecution never starts like this. One day, everybody loves Christians. Christians are amazing. We love Christians. Let's hire Christians. Let's, Christians are the best. We need more Christians in our country. And the next day, everybody wakes up and they start jailing and killing Christians. That's not how it works. Persecution always comes in, there's stages. And there's probably three basic stages you can identify that lead to, from no persecution to persecution. And we, right now in Canada, are well into stage one, probably well into stage two. Stage one is political incorrectness. This is when the members of society all agree together that what Christians believe is offensive. And so it becomes offensive to say that homosexuality is a sin. And it becomes offensive to say that abortion should all be outlawed. It becomes offensive to say that you support Israel. It becomes offensive to say that marriage should only be between one man and one woman. It just becomes offensive to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father and salvation in heaven and the other ones will take you to hell. It just becomes offensive to say all of that. And over time it becomes so offensive that even Christians start to buy into it. And they start to say things like, well, it's not, it's not my right to, to talk about Jesus or my faith or to say these things. Who am I to say anything? And we all get quiet. And it becomes so offensive that eventually no Christian would dare to talk to their students or their employees or their co-workers. No Christian would dare to talk about what they believe on key issues because we should keep uh, religion and public life separate. It just becomes so offensive. We are well into stage one right now in Canada already. Right here in Steinbeck, a Christian community, it right now takes hundreds of signatures every year just so that our kids can be allowed to say the Lord's Prayer in the school. Just for a little prayer. It takes hundreds of signatures every year. And the moment we don't get the signatures, school shuts down. Even if you want your kid to get it, they won't. Yet at the same time, this last week, in cute, sweet little Altona, Manitoba, in a couple of grade five classes, and you can look this up online, you can look it up in the newspapers, there was a huge uproar because in a couple of grade five classes, the teachers, without asking parental permission, without getting signatures, you need that for prayer, but you don't need it for radical political and sexual agendas. They put up cards for all the kids to read and agree to that the kids would look and read and say, I agree and, or I support bisexual, homosexual, transgender, uh, two-spirit, queer, and all. It just went this whole list of all the things that these kids support. And so now right here in Manitoba, wonderful Manitoba, you've got to get signatures to say the Lord's Prayer, but your kids can be exposed at the drop of a hat with no permission at all, they can be exposed to these radical agendas. We're well into stage one. I could tell you horror stories of people who have been fined and pulled before the Human Rights Commission here in Canada right now in the last year, two years, because of things they've said about their Christian beliefs or things they've believed. And after stage one comes stage two, which is active discrimination. This is where something goes from being offensive to being hate speech. It used to be just offensive if you would say that abortion should be outlawed, or I support Israel, or marriage should be between a man and a woman. It used to just be offensive, don't say it, it's bad. And then it becomes hate speech. And the moment it's hate speech, they've got a whole bunch of laws about what they can do to you, and now the law is used against Christian beliefs. And you don't have to be in stage two very long to get to stage three, which is overt persecution. You sit there and you say, well, hello, Mr. Doom and Gloom in the Heaven series. 
The reason I'm passionate about this is churches need to wake up and start talking about eternity and heaven and hell and end times and persecution because it's coming. Because if we don't, our churches are more like cruise ships than battleships. And Christians are just going to, they're just going to fold under compromise. It's happening now already. What would you do if they come to you for your job and say, we won't give you that promotion. In fact, we won't even keep you around here unless you sign this card that says you support such and such. What will you do then? A lot of Christians already right now, you know what they're doing? They're saying, well, I'll just sign it, but in my heart, I'm still believing in Jesus. That's compromise. That shows that you're looking for gain in this life rather than the next time. Because in this passage, it says that the ones who lose in this lifetime and remain faithful, they get a promotion up to the top of the ladder in heaven for eternity. So when you get a clear picture in your head of eternity and persecution comes, rather than bending to compromise, you say, woohoo, this is my chance to get promoted forever. This is my chance to lose something here so I can gain something there. And so I finish with this verse, Matthew 5, verse 10. Jesus said this, Blessed, how lucky you are. Throw a party. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. Get a vision from heaven, begin to walk with Jesus, then stand up for him and collect a reward forever and ever. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church body and church family here at Southland. That we would be strong in the persecution and testing that is to come. And that we would be strong out of our vision of reward and spending time with you in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.